This is a Federal News Network podcast. Registered nurses working for the Veterans Health Administration in Las Vegas recently got a 12% raise. This after promising to hold a big rally that got management to sit down with the Title 38 employees. We got details from the president of Local 1224 of the American Federation Government Employees, Linda Ward-Smith, who spoke to Federal Drive host Tom Temin. Let's start with what is available to Title 38 employees, because under Title 5 and under other statutes, you can't bargain over pay and benefits with the federal government. But Title 38 sounds like a different cat. That is correct. Actually, VA's own handbook states that every year the VA will go out and survey the market to see if the pay is competitive to the market. And if it's not competitive, the agency would do all it could to be competitive, not be the high payer of the market, but actually compete. And we discovered throughout the last four to five years, these surveys had not been done. And so we were playing catch up, so to speak. So the agency did decide to sit down with us, the local union, and have that discussion and actually raise the nurses' wages up by 12%. I do want to say that there's also um, Title V employees who actually do fit into this category just by Congress alone converting some professions over to the Title 38 pay system they now actually take advantage of this pay system and their wages are being reviewed and actually being raised as well. So we have a win-win, not just for our nurses and doctors, but actually for uh, some of our groups like our radiologists, our psychologists, our social workers. So they're all reaping the benefit right now as we speak. And 1224 covers all of the medical people at VA in Las Vegas or just the nurses or who do you cover? We, we cover all professions um, from the EMS workers, which is our janitorial system, all the way up to cafeteria and to the nurses and doctors. So we cover them all. And give us a sense of the size of the Las Vegas. This was a Las Vegas medical center. Was it a one of the major installations of VA? Yes, yes. Currently, we have over 3,100 bargaining unit employees that we are covering. So, yeah, we're pretty large now. We grew pretty rapidly over the years. And therefore, it was determined, it sounds like, that, say, someone at the Howard Hughes Medical Center or the other areas that offer health care in Las Vegas were simply paying more than VA by a lot. Yes. So how that works is the agency goes out and surveys. Um, they, they pay for these wage surveys, actually. And they survey of the market, and then they get those um, surveys back. And based on the average is how they compute, I guess, what they're going to pay the employees. And what did they say? I mean, if you noticed that they hadn't been doing this for five years, what kinds of conversations ensued here before the threatened rally? A lot of the um, blame has been put on the modernization um, that has occurred through the VA system over the last, I want to say maybe about four to five years, where HR, our Human Resources Department now has taken over everything, including compensation, wages, and all that good stuff. So the agency states that it was the fault of HR who had not been doing the surveys like they should have been, and the local really does not have any control. So when they discovered this, supposedly, they decided that, yes, there is something going on and we need to fix it. And that is why they were willing to come to the table so quickly and do what they could to assist. 
We're speaking with Linda Ward-Smith, president of Local 1224 of the American Federation of Government Employees, which represents nurses and other staff, really, at the Veterans Health Administration. And the press release from AFGE said it was the threat of the rally that got them into action. What were you planning to do? Full transparency, I have been meeting with my local administration, with the director and the uh, deputy director, um, for several months leading up to the threat of the rally, hopefully to try to settle things without having to take it to the streets. And, you know, they have put been saying it's coming, it's coming. And but HR, of course, was slow to um, to act. And of course, the employees don't want to hear that. Right. So, you know, after so many, it's coming, it's coming. I, I had to do something. And the nurses actually wanted to rally and just, you know, say we're serious about this. So I did let our director know, hey, you know, we we can't keep putting this off. I mean, it's been several years. We need to do something. And actually, they asked if we can just hold off on the rally. And they met with me and said that this is what we have in the works. And within two pay periods, actually, the nurses were paid. Because Las Vegas is something of a union town, so you probably would have had some good solidarity from the other, I don't know, the uh, casino unions or whatever. There's a lot of unions operating in those hotels, the convention center. Do you feel like you would have had some maybe lift under the wings if that had happened? Actually, we've been very successful throughout the last couple of years with many rallies, and um, our rallies do usually uh, yield a lot of media coverage. So I think that may have had something to do with it. Now, what about the other employees at the Las Vegas Medical Center? The nurses now are taken care of. You've got doctors. You've got administrators. I think even they're part of that Title V that are coming under the Title 38 pay system. And then the people that are down lower doing the kind of day-to-day drudgery that keeps a hospital actually operating. Yeah, so that was one of my concerns as well. I didn't want it to look as if I just took care of the nurses and nobody else, right? So I did also state to the other employees, because like I said, they've actually been working on a lot of the schedules, like our psychologists, our social workers, all of them actually have been getting, our radiologists have been getting um, their pay throughout, you know, the last several months. It was like it was slow for the nurses to get paid. And that was kind of weird to me. You know, I, you know, I was going to take it somewhere else, but I didn't and say, you know, these are a, a large body of women. Why are we so slow with the nurses? But I didn't go there. So, yes, that was kind of puzzling. And uh, we do still have GS employees, of course, who still feel like, OK, our wages don't climb like they should and we need to fix it. And uh, we all know, well, the GS system does really need to be fixed, in my opinion. It it is slow. The raises don't happen as rapidly. And I don't think that they're competitive either. So, you know, that's an act of Congress, which I believe should be addressed. Linda Ward-Smith is president of Local 1224 of the American Federation of Government Employees, which represents nurses at the Veterans Health Administration. She spoke to Federal News Network's Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. You can subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right? That kind of approach. 
And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? 
You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a three-in-one formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. It keeps you seeing safely all year long. Pick up some at Walmart today. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash.